Hey, Cracked fans, as winter slowly turns into spring and all of us look forward to getting back on the outdoor tennis courts, we here at Crack Rackets want to ensure that you listeners have everything you need to make sure your return to outdoor tennis is a successful one. That's where our friends at Gamma Sports come in. Now, if you need new strings, new grips, new court equipment, ball hoppers, machine tools, and accessories, whatever it may be, our friends at Gamma have it all for you. They've also, of course, got dampeners, over grips, replacement grips. They've got it all. And if you go to their website, gammasports.com slash tennis right now, you use our promo code CRACK20, you'll get 20% off your order. Now, I know Gamma has a new string pattern in the queue called the React Pro which all of you Gamma String users will enjoy. And even if you're not using Gamma Strings, maybe now's the time to start. But they've also got polyesters, everything you could be looking for from a tennis equipment standpoint, all in one location. Just go to gammasports.com slash tennis right now. Use that promo code CRACK20 to get 20% off your order. Again, gammasports.com slash tennis. Use that promo code CRACK20 to get 20% off your order. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, March 15th. The favorites deliver on a fantastic weekend of professional tennis for all of us fans to enjoy. Garbine Muguruza finally entering the winner's circle for the first time since 2019. Feels like that was inevitable, given the level we've seen from her over the past 15 months. Of course, we also saw Daniil Medvedev capture another title on indoor hard courts. Christian Garin earning another title on the South American Red Clay Courts. A fantastic weekend from start to finish. What I want to do on today's podcast is recap all of the ATP and WTA level action. I'm going to save the Challenger recap for a great shot podcast I'm doing later in the week with Cracked Rackets contributor David Gertler. We're going to try and make those weekly moving forward. So that's going to be where we focus on the ATP Challenger Tour. Of course, fantastic college tennis action this weekend. My Michigan Wolverines earning their first victory over Ohio State since 2001. Going to save that conversation and all of the other college tennis talk for this week's Great Shot Podcast with Chris Helios and Matt Stokowiak. I'm also going to divide up these early week mini breaks. Normally, I try and jam both a recap of the weekend's action as well as a preview of the upcoming week all into one podcast. Now, there's been so much action uh, over these past few weeks uh, that it's going to make it difficult to do that. It certainly made it difficult to do that this week. So, I'm just going to recap the ATP and WTA action on today's podcast. I will preview next week, talk about the Jaws on a separate podcast. Those pods about uh, going to come out about two, uh, 12 hours apart from each other. But again, just so it's not one long hour and a half podcast, you can divide it up a little bit across episodes. That's what we're going to be doing here this week on the Mini Break Podcast. You also might notice it's not the usual audio quality. I had to switch microphones. Now, we do have a backup mic active, but again, if it doesn't sound exactly how you're used to it for some reason. Maybe my voice is a tone lower. That might be a good thing for me, but obviously again, we are continuing to try and ensure our audio quality is where we want it to be. We believe this backup mic will do the job, but just wanted to make that clear for all of you longtime listeners who are like, huh, 
Alex does sound a little bit different today. Just wanted to explain that to all of you. Of course, the reason we're able to do this day in, day out, week in, week out here at Cracked Rackets is because of the support we get from all of you fantastic listeners who continue to like, rate, subscribe, review, and we are so appreciative of you doing that, not just on this podcast, but on our Great Shot podcast, our Cracked Interviews podcast. And, you know, of course, I wouldn't ask for it if it didn't help us. So if you haven't, please, it takes like 35 seconds. You probably could have already done it by the time I did this rant. And I know there are some of you out there who still haven't done it because I know our listener counts. I look at the like, rate, subscribe, review, whatever. Not all of you have left a comment. Not all of you have reviewed it, which I understand. Totally cool. But if you have that extra 35 seconds and you wouldn't mind doing that, please go ahead and do so. Also, of course, shout out to our Patreon family. So uh, grateful for their continued support as well as the support we get from our friends at Midwest Sports. If you aren't already, go play along with us in our Cracked Rackets Picks Pool, powered by Midwest Sports. Every day you submit one winner from across the many ATP and WTA events happening across the globe. At the end of each month, we're going to be giving out $25 gift cards to the person with the most correct picks, as well as the person with the longest win streak. Excuse me. If you would like to start playing along, you can find out how on our website, crackrackets.com. Of course, if you need to update any of your own gear, turn to our friends at midwestsports.com. They've got the best gear at the best prices. You use our promo code CR15. You'll let them know we sent you there. Get 15% off your order. Free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. And best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. Midwestsports.com. The promo code is CR15. With that in mind, let's recap this weekend's action and let's start where we've started it feels like for really the past six weeks anytime we're talking about a WTA event we're going to start in Dubai and we're going to start with Garbine Muguruza who I talked about a lot on last week's shows and we had the opportunity to ask her some questions here we I say I say we because it's the pejorative we I had the chance to ask her some questions in the post-match pressers last week if you want to hear directly from her be sure to go check out our cracked interviews podcast those from the presser segments but you know simply put Muguruza was the best player this past week, and it wasn't particularly close either. You look for her throughout the course of the weekend. She dropped uh, uh, the weekend, excuse me, throughout the course of the week. She dropped only one set. Uh, it was a set she dropped in her quarterfinal match against Arena Sabalenka, the first set of that match. And Arena Sabalenka's level in that first set, as we discussed, was incredibly high, but. You know, she drops one set. It's not as though she had some patty cake schedule to uh, this Dubai title. You look, the first round she wins over Irina Begu, who's played really well of late. Then she knocks off, you know, a not-in-form Anisimova in straight sets. But, of course, given Anisimova's power, that's always a tricky matchup. Plus the fact that Muguruza has played so many matches over the past few weeks that she came directly from the Doha final last week. And, you know, then the gauntlet she ran from the round of 16 on to beat Iga Sviantek 0-4 to beat Sabalenka, come back after dropping that first set, break Sabalenka, not only Sabalenka's rhythm, but really just, you know, again, break her down competitively as well. And then a fantastic level in the semifinal against Elisa Mertens. Uh, you know, she continued that level in the final against Barbara Krechikova. You know, right now, the WTA rankings have Garbine Muguruza ranked 13 overall, but that's an absolute crime. 
I mean, again, you look at what she's been able to accomplish. She's 25-7 and in her last 52 weeks. That includes back-to-back finals runs here in Dubai and Doha, a semifinal in Rome on the clay, a final in one of the build-up events to the Australian Open, and then, of course, the round of 16 at the Australian Open where she had match points against Naomi Osaka. Now, she lost a third-round match at the French Open last year to Danielle Collins in three sets, and that was a fantastic match to any of you who remember it, but I'll keep referring to this number for Garbine Muguruza. She's 41-11 and 11 since the start of the 2020 season. She's won 80% of her matches. If 41-11 and 11 with an Australian Open final back in 2020, and again, you know, that Rome semifinal she made, the Doha-Dubai back-to-back final title run, the Yara Valley Classic final, if that's not enough to make her a top-10 player, then clearly something is wrong with the ranking system. And I know we're trying to incorporate protections because we don't want to punish players who weren't comfortable playing during a pandemic. But Garbine Muguruza is not only a top 10 player, I think at a minimum she's a top 5 player. And if you look at Tennis Abstract's ELO rankings, which of course measures who you're playing, who you're beating, not when and where you're beating them, she's the number 4 player by ELO rating right now behind only Osaka, Barty and Halep, that feels much more accurate. And I talked about it in the deciding point this week with Jamie McDonald, but her combination of speed, power, you know, her serve, uh, her movement, her length, her ability on the return of serve to get that point back to neutral at a minimum, or if you float a second serve, she's going to go either big down the line or big down the middle to take control of the point. She's comfortable hitting the swinging volleys, which is what she did to get Krechikova off of her spot. And she was so aggressive on her return of serve as well. And you look in the Krechikova match, you know, there were only, I think, five breaks of serve total, two for uh, Krechikova, three breaks for Muguruza. I mean, all week long, she averaged, you know, really since the start of the 2020 season, she's making about 65% of her first serves, winning about 68% of those points. Uh, That's just a high efficient, high level tennis. She's, you know, breaking uh, about, uh, or you look at her return points when she's winning 46% of her return points. She's breaking, you know, I think you look for her in terms of returners. She's a top 10 returner right now in the women's game as well amongst top 50 players. If you're a top five server and a top 10 returner, you're probably doing something right. And Garbine Muguruza is doing everything right right now. Again, it's all clicking for her. She's playing confidently. She's playing freely. She earns her first WTA title since 2019. And again, it just feels like her at number 13 in the rankings is far too low. Now, I did have the chance to talk to Muguruza a little bit after her final. We did not play that clip as a from the presser. We still have it available. So with that in mind, uh, here's what I wanted to ask Arbeen Muguruza following her getting to the winner's circle here in Dubai. So I'm just curious, you've played, you've made three runs to finals this year, and you've only played one player twice, and it's Arena Sabalenka. I'm just curious, how thin are the margins at the top of the game? You know, how difficult is it uh, to emerge and win a title uh, any given week? Very hard nowadays, because I feel like the level is much stronger. I feel really everybody can win the tournament. Everybody that is playing well and, and, and feels good this week can get the trophy. This is how hard women's tennis is now. And, you know, very happy that I I managed to, for two weeks, being able to reach the last match because it's never easy. You have all these opponents, you know, not being seated and having to play 10 matches in a row makes it difficult. Um, 
but but it's very hard and uh, happy that I manage well physically on um, on top of that physically was hard, but I was happy that I could handle that. I do want to quickly add before we move on from Muguruza, having the chance to hear from her in the press conferences, uh, you know, these past two weeks, she's just so in command of every aspect of her career right now on the court, off the court. She just seems so comfortable, so in control. And that's why she's played such outstanding tennis. So again, Garbin Muguruza earning the title uh, as she knocks off Krejcikova and Mertens this past weekend. Want to quickly talk about Barbara Krejcikova because quietly, you know, Krejcikova, the former number one doubles player in the world, I believe a five-time Grand Slam champion between her women's and mixed doubles experiences. She's 27-12 and 12 in her last 52, match. You want to ex- uh, 52 weeks. You want to expand that to the start of the 2020 season. And again, shout out to the team at Tennis Abstract for making all of these statistics possible. She's 32-15 and 15 overall since the start of the 2020 season. Now in just WTA-level events, she's 25-12. and 12. And you look for her really since, I would say, the restart last year where she lost a three-set match to Halep in Prague. She then makes the round of 16 at Roland Garros before losing to Protoroska. She qualifies in Ostrava before losing three sets to Azarenka. Semifinals in Linz before losing three sets to, uh, to uh, excuse me, it was Azarenka the first time, Sabalenka the second time. She then loses to Putin Seva in Abu Dhabi, which is fine. Putin Seva is a top 30 player. She loses to Jen Brady in the Australian warm-up, open warm-up event. Totally cool. She loses to Alexandrova 3-6 and six in the second round of the Australian Open. That's not a bad result. Now, you know, in qualifying last week in Doha, she lost to Buxa. That's not a great result. That's probably her only bad loss at the WTA level since the start of the 2020 season. But, you know, you look at the wins she got last week. Sakri, Ostapenko, Kuznetsova, the young Russian Potapova, and then Teichman. She didn't drop a set along the way, and a lot of her strength was founded upon really strong performances on serve. You look across the board. She was broken a total of, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six times in her five matches leading up to the final. You know, and I, you just to be blunt, to do that in women's tennis is really difficult to do. And why Krejcikova has so much success is because if you give her a clean look at a plus one ball, she's going to move you around the court. And the moment she can be the aggressor within a point, and this is where the double skills come in, she's moving forward. She's at the net. She's you know going big down the line. She's taking her chances. She'll throw in the drop shot. She's obviously such a comfortable volleyer. Now, the forehand backswing is big, and having the chance to talk to her in the press uh, throughout the the week, she expressed at one point that, look, she used to have her most success on clay, but given her aggression, she thinks she can be really successful on hard courts. And I agree, just her willingness to go behind Muguruza in that final, that was the way she combated the speed, the length, the strength of Muguruza in the outer thirds of the court. She just wanted to not let Muguruza get clean looks at the ball, and she kept changing direction, taking balls early again. She got broken. Uh, she broke right away to start the match, and, you know, Muguruza then was able to get that break back and opened up a break lead in the set. But, you know, Krejcikova held on to that serve and Krejcikova was able to get a break back in the second set and make Muguruza sweat things out. But, you know, Muguruza was just too good in the end. However, the fact that Barbara Krejcikova, who, by the way, 
only 25 years old, now up to number 38 in the world. Given her success, 25-12 and 12 since the start of 2020, and again, some of those wins came in qualifying, but the fact that she continues to have success in qualifying and now push through in main draws as well, she's the real deal, folks, and I think she's going to be a top 50 players in both singles and doubles. It's very Pierre Uzerbear-esque. Uh, that would probably be my player comp for her, and we saw the success he had this week in Marseille, right? So it was the week for the doubles players in the singles results, but Krechikova was outstanding this past weekend, and again, she knocked off an informed Jill Teichman in the semifinals. You look for Teichman, I believe that was her sixth career semifinal, but she's 23 and 13 now in her last 52, up to a new career high of number 41 in the live rankings. That's where she deserves to be, uh, given how many finals. I think she's made three finals in the past, what, two years or year and a half, and, you know, semifinal in Dubai was preceded by a semifinal in Adelaide, which was preceded by a quarterfinal in the Phillips Island Trophy event that was that second week of the Australian Open. Uh, she's been really good. Of course, that Lexington final run she made right as the restart began. Quarterfinal in Strasbourg on the clay as well. The success hasn't quite translated to the Grand Slams yet, but she's getting there. And week in, week out, she's starting to have that success. Such a well-rounded game. I think Teichman is a top 10. Like She is an underrated mover. She moves so well around the court. And she moves the ball well around the court as well. She's comfortable moving forward, being the aggressor, that heavy top spin forehand. I was really impressed by her performance. She's a top 50 player. And again, only 23 years old. So another one of those youngsters you throw in the mix. Last thing I want to mention uh, on all things this past weekend in Dubai is Elisa Merton who 17 in the world right now, career high number 12, 25 years old. She's never going to have the huge weapons that wow you as a tennis fan. You're never going to watch Elise Mertens and say that person does this thing better than anyone else in the world. But she does everything as well as almost anyone else in the world. She's a better mover than you think, and when she's on the run, she's able to make you uncomfortable by playing these angles or playing these high elevated over the net topspin shots or just going for line drives down the line, and you know she's able to be aggressive with her return. She's comfortable moving forward as well. She's someone who, along with Sabalenka, I believe, reached the number one doubles position in the world and just has such a well-rounded skill set, could do so many things well. If she could move... If she was a step faster, if she could move like Simona Halep, I think she'd be a Grand Slam champion. Now, because she's just not quite the mover that Halep is, does she have the big enough weapons to hang with, you know, to beat a Sabalenka and a Sviantec and a Azarenka, Kvitova, back-to-back-to-back-to-back, as you have to do right now to win a slam in women's tennis? Obviously, Osaka Muguruza as well. There are names I didn't mention there you'd have to beat. Uh... I mean, the answer she's coming closer and closer to providing is yes. And I mean, she doesn't lose to players who she's not supposed to lose to. You look for Elisa Mertens, who I mentioned was the wins leader last year, 34-10 and 10 in her last 52. You know, the loss to Mukarutha in Dubai, fine. She lost 6-5 and five to Mukova in the Australian Open round of 16. That match was an absolute pick'em. She won the Gippsland Trophy warm-up event. She lost in the final of Linz at the end of last season to Sabalenka, lost to Azarenka, uh, in Ostrava in the quarterfinals in the event before. It takes the best of the best 
to beat Elisa Mertens because she can do so many things well right now. She needs to find a way to make things a little bit easier for her, and you look for her this week, and you know her first serve percentage was a little bit lower in a few matches, but she eclipsed the 70% mark on her first serve win percentage and first serve points one uh, in three of her five matches, and I think that's a trend you're going to have to see for her, even if the percentage on that first serve comes down for her ability. When she can play plus one tennis from there, she's really, really difficult to beat. So again, fantastic week of tennis in Dubai. I feel like I've been locked in on the women's action so closely. The good news, if you're an ATP fan who's listening to this uh, podcast, I'm going to be in Cleveland for the Challenger this week. I'm going to talk about that at the end of the show, I promise. But uh, I also know there are two ATP 500 events in Dubai and Acapulco. They will have my full attention. I'm going to be leading with them in every show we do this week because I feel like we have, you know, as the Middle East swing commands the attention of tennis fans, given how many ex- exceptional players there were participating in the events. Uh, but again, I am well aware of how focused I have been on the WTA Tour. I will switch gears a little bit this week, focus in on the action for the men. And with that in mind, let's do flip gears now. We'll get back to Guadalajara, but let's cover the ATP event in Marseille. And, you know, a surprise to no one. Daniil Medvedev has his serve broken once throughout the course of the week. Uh, that one break of serve coming in the final match, Pierre Uzerbert able to, I believe, get the break in the first set. I believe it was a break back, actually, and then Medvedev broke him right away. Now, it was a three-set final for Medvedev over Erbert, and you have to say if you're Daniil Medvedev, wins over Gerasimov, Sinner, Ebden, Erbert. That's a title he would have valued probably more in 2018 than he does here in 2021, but, you know, he only dropped one set on the weekend. And it was because Air Bear played fantastic tennis uh, in that final and just throughout the week. And for Air Bear, wins over Nishikori, Nori, Tsitsipas, and Umber. That's a gauntlet. That is such an impressive run. And for Air Bear, it was the success he had on his first serve all week long. You look at the numbers for him. He won 83%, 80, 80%, 79%, 86%, 72% of his first serve points across the five matches. That's simply put outstanding. And I mean, in this match against Medvedev, he made 65% of his first serves, won 72% of his first serve points, 53% of his second serve points, saved three of the six breakpoint chances he faced. But, you know, Medvedev's going to Medvedev. He just can beat you in so many different ways, and you just have to be so aggressive, and you have to play to win. And that's why Herbert did better than, I think, any of Medvedev's earlier opponents. Ebden was a little bit banged up, but I was really disappointed with how tentative Yannick Sinner played in that quarterfinal match. It was very reminiscent to what Medvedev did to Rublev in the Australian Open quarterfinals this year. You know, Rublev was fine. He's like, all right, we're going to exchange backhands. That's fine. I'm going to exchange backhands with you, Daniil Medvedev. I'm going to be really patient. And the problem is, if you're really patient, now you're starting to play Medvedev's game. Pierre Uzerbert did not do that. He was Serving and volleying, returning and volleying, trying to get to the net and put pressure on Medvedev whenever possible. And his hands are so good at the net that as good as Medvedev's two passing shot combos, you know, the first one he hits from the baseline, dips low, tries to get a short volley that he can track down and then put the point away uh, with. Herbert just does such a good job of covering that second passing shot that he was there and he had responses to all of the questions Medvedev asked. But, you know, in the end, Medvedev was just able to dip so many different balls low uh, at the feet of Pierre Uzerbert creates so many different second pass. Uh, 
creates so many second passing shot opportunities for himself uh, that ultimately he was able to get the job done and prevail 6-4, 6-7, to earn the 10th ATP title of his career. I'm not counting that ATP Cup title as an ATP title. Tenth individual title, I should say, of his career. He trails only Daniil Medvedev of, uh, Daniil Medvedev, I should say, only trails Alex Zverev of the next-gen crew. But uh, again, for Medvedev now, 34-8 and eight in his last 52. The titles in Paris, the title at the World Tour Finals, ATP Cup, Australian Open Final. The Rotterdam first-round loss now looks like a blip, and he is back on schedule. And by the way, up to number two in the world. I mentioned this last week. He officially usurps Rafa and gives us the first time, I think, since the 2005 season that someone not named Rafael Nadal, Roger Federer, Andy Murray, or Novak Djokovic has occupied a spot in the top two of the ATP rankings. Now, some of you may be thinking, is it deserved? Should you be a top two player if you haven't won a Grand Slam and there are more than two players who are still at the top of their games who have? You can say no if you want, but I mean, two Grand Slam finals, you know, obviously between the Australian Open and the U.S. Open in 2019. He made the U.S. Open semifinals last year. He won Paris. He won the Tour Finals. What more do you want from the guy? He's certainly one of the five best players in men's tennis right now. And obviously, some people might think, well, Djokovic and Nadal are one and two, and they should just be there until someone beats them at a slam. Well, Dominic Team beat them at a slam. Should he be number three? You know, should he be number three? Is that the philosophy? Are you saying Team should be three no matter what? I think we can all agree Daniil Medvedev has been better since the restart then Dominic Team over the course of the restart uh, outside of that one event where of course Medvedev uh, team was able to beat Medvedev in the US Open semifinals but Anyways, Daniil Medvedev, I've made the case on previous podcasts. He's serving like John Isner in his prime. He's breaking serve like Novak Djokovic or Rafael Nadal in their primes. The math, Daniil Medvedev has broken the math. He's broken the conventions of tennis. It just works, uh, and he continues to find success. Now, quickly on Pierre Uzerbert, 24-18. Since the start of the 2020 season, now, unfortunately, there are no ATP titles for him in that stretch. And I believe you look for Pierre Uzerbert. I think he is still in pursuit of his first ATP title. Let's see, for him now, uh, to finals he has made uh, in singles. Montpellier, he didn't win that one. Winston-Salem, he lost in the final there. Yes, I believe he's still looking for his first ATP title. But again, uh, he has played some really outstanding tennis of late 24 and 18 overall. You look at how many quarterfinals he's made over that stretch in the 18 events he's played, excuse me, in the 14 events he's played at the ATP level. He's made the quarterfinals now. Uh, I believe this is his third quarterfinal in his past 14 events, which isn't great, uh, but it's it's pretty solid. I mean, he is a guy who's currently ranked number 73. Yeah, he's a top 100 player. That is what he is. He belongs in these ATP events competing because when he plays his best, his ability to strike the ball and you know move forward, make his opponents uncomfortable, very, very fun to watch, very fun contrast to some of the other players on tour. Now, uh, you want to talk about quickly some of the other results we saw in Marseille. You want to talk, I want to talk, I should say. Hey, great shot. Uh, Stefano Tsitsipas lost a quarterfinal match to Pierre Uzerbert. Now, Tsitsipas served for the first set up 5-4. Erbert broke him. Tsitsipas ended up taking the breaker 8-6 in the first set top break, but then, I mean, Air Bear just put so much pressure on Tsitsipas, kept forcing him to just hit 
passing shots, even if he wasn't in the most uncomfortable position, just kept him on his back foot, didn't allow Tsitsipas to be the aggressor. And, you know, again, that's why Herbert is such a tricky opponent because of how uncomfortable he makes you. Uh, but I didn't think it was a bad loss for Tsitsipas by any stretch, nor a bad performance. I, again, I already mentioned I was a little disappointed by Yannick Sinner's de- uh, performance against Daniil Medvedev. He just he came out much more tentative than I've ever seen him play, and that was surprising to see. Great week for Matt Ebden, who knocked off Karen Hatchinov in three sets, just played low, flat, aggressive indoor hardcourt tennis. And then Ugo Umber, I will continue to be fascinated by his three-set win over former Texas A&M All-American Arthur Rinderneck, who, by the way, first ATP quarterfinal for the former All-American Aggie. Shout out to him. Uh, Umber fights off. I don't think he fought a match point off, but, you know, he ends up getting the break of serve for six at, uh, at 6-5 in that second set, ends up fighting back for a 4-6-7-5-7-6 victory over Arthur Rinderneck, and I think Rinderneck did serve for the match, truth be told, and it, it was just a really fun battle. Rinderneck, the big serve, the big forehand, I think he won 80% of his first serve points throughout the course of the week and was just having so much success on those indoor hard courts, finding the the big plus one forehand moving forward, having success. His game works on indoor hard courts. Does it work elsewhere? Time will still tell, but I do think very, very possible we see Arthur Rinderneck in the top 100 sometime soon. Anyways, Ugo Bear can just do a little bit of everything. He's like 6'2", 6'3", but he's got big pop on his serve. He can move really well, fluid around the court, comfortable playing slice, although Rinderneck hit everything to the Ugo Umber backhand side because that is the ball that sits a little bit shorter. And sometimes the Umber forehand sits short. Other time he slaps the ball and drives through the court. He's comfortable moving forward. He's just a really interesting player, and just a fun fact for uh, all of you uh, listeners: you, you know, two players since the start of 2020. One of them's 29 and 17, so a six thir- uh, 63% win percentage. Two titles, two semifinals, two and four at the majors, six and six versus top 20 players. And by the way, you can read this all in a tweet I sent. Player B: 21 and 15. 583 win percentage, one ATP title, one final, one semifinal, six and three at the majors, five and six versus top 20 players. Now, by the math, you probably say player A's been a hair better than player B over the past year. Player A, Ugo Umber. Player B, Alex Diemenauer. So I guess the question I ask by bringing up those stats, do you all consider Ugo Umber in that sort of category of next-gen, or in that Hachinov, Demonauer, Chorich-ish category where it's like, all right, we know these guys are going to be really, really good for a really long time, probably top 20 players. I do think that about Ugo Umber. I think it's going to work across surfaces. He's a guy who can do a little bit of everything. And again, he's your modern-day athlete that you want to see, in my opinion, in men's tennis. Good length, good speed, good fluidity. A good week for him in Marseille, but just Herbert put a little bit too much pressure on him in that semifinal as well. But again, that is your recap of Marseille. Certainly was an interesting uh, event on the indoor hard courts in France. Let's move next to 
to Guadalajara. And again, I'm going to go a little bit quicker now through these next few events in Guadalajara. Sarah Cerebas Torbo. Talented 23-year-old Spaniard earns the first WTA level, uh, 24-year-old Spaniard, excuse me, earns the first WTA level title of her career now. She does not drop a set on the week either, beating Sharma, beating Buzkova in a physical semifinal three and six, and then knocking off Jeannie Bouchard two and five in the final. Simply put, Sarah Suribes Tormo makes a ton of of tennis balls throughout the course of the match. She's just going to keep making that slice backhand back or keep changing direction with that forehand. She looks to hit the forehand heavy, and the serve is not the most aesthetically pleasing, but it gets the job done. She hits her spot so well, and it's sneaky powerful. Uh, and, and again, she just... She just put so much pressure on her opponents. And against Bouchard, you know, Bouchard would just, when Bouchard was patient, when she would be willing to hit 20, 25 balls a rally, uh, she was the more powerful player. And that second set, the level of quality was really, really high, particularly as Judy Bouchard saw her opportunity to win the title slip away. She really raised her game, but Cerebes Tormo just continued to put pressure on you. And then the second you fall asleep, she sneaks forward to the net and cuts the ball off and hits a volley and is comfortable up there as well. So, you know, fantastic result for Cerebes Tormo. And it feels like it was coming for the now number 57 player in the world, 26 and 15 in her last 52. You know, she was a quarterfinalist in Ostrava to end the year last year, quarterfinalist in Abu Dhabi to start this season, won a couple of matches, or excuse me, uh, was knocked out first round uh, to, I believe, Gavrilova in the Australian Open, but then, you know, again, gets a win at the Phillips Island Trophy event and bounces back here in Guadalajara. I think her best surface in her career thus far has been clay. That's where the majority of her ITF success has come, but First WTA title comes on hard court. She's also made a final at 100K on grass. She's done it on clay courts. Her game just works because of how much pressure she puts on you. And because, again, she works you to the outer thirds of the court, keeps you uncomfortable. Fun fact for all of you listeners, Sarah Cerebus Tormo, born October 8th, 1996. Garbin Muguruza. Born October 8, 1993. So it's just a good week to be born on October 8th if you are a WTA player. Sarah Cerebes Tormo, again, all straight set victories for her. Was a fantastic semifinal and final run. Two, you know, straight set matches, but both over two hours. Uh, and again, for her to out-physical to wear down Marie Buzkova speaks to how locked in she is right now. Well-deserved title for the 24-year-old now. Some of the other notable performers, Jeannie Bouchard, who, by the way, 2011, 20 and 11 since the start of 2020 in WTA level matches. She also has now reached two finals, one on the clay in Istanbul, now another one here on the hard courts in Guadalajara. You know, her best win through those two events was probably over Kuznetsova in the round of 16 in a three-set win in Istanbul. Her be- her next best event, maybe Co- or win, maybe Cochiredo, like maybe Kaya Yuvan. So again, It's been players who are fringe top 100 players that Bouchard's beating, but by going 20-11 and and beating all those players, she has 
proven once again, in my opinion, that she belongs back in the top 100. And, you know, again, because her power tennis, it's not the elite of the elite tiers, but if you leave a ball in the center, she's going to make you pay and she's comfortable moving forward. Her ability to hit that inside out forehand and that backhand cross court in particular, that's the side she likes to be aggressive towards that ad side of the court. Uh, But she looks comfortable physically. She looks confident on court now up to number 116 in the world. Not going to shock me if we see her crack the top 100 later this season. Then Marie Buzkova, who into the top 50 now, up to number 46, uh, tying her career high. Uh, now she's 25 and 16 over her la- uh, since the start of 2020. Made the finals at the Phillips Island event after the Australian Open, where she lost first round to Svitolina. Of course, to follow that up with the semifinal here in Guadalajara before losing in either or match against Cerebas Tormos. The sort of start you know she wants to her season. She also made round of 16 before losing a battle in three sets to Ashley Barty in the Australian Open warm-up event. She's a top 50 player, folks. She's here to stay. She just moves so well. She puts so much pressure on you. And then sneaky power as well. Her and Fiona Farrow, uh, just again, I like them both because they both move so well. And they're counterpunchers in the truest sense of the word. Uh, Marie Buzkova more so than Farrow. But anyways, uh, I thought another good week for Marie Buzkova as well in Guadalajara. Let's move to Doha now and look, I sent out a tweet this weekend that got a comfortable, you know, it got a it was well responded to criticizing the ATP for allowing Nicholas Basilashvili to continue to play given that he faces physical assault charges of his ex-wife back in his home country of Georgia and you know he was arrested he was forced to pay bail so that you know until the the trial is concluded uh, until the trial and the case is closed and right now the trial is ongoing and there hasn't been a conclusion yet he hasn't been you know convicted and deemed guilty but he, or I suppose he's been charged but not convicted it to correct something I said earlier he's been charged but he hasn't been convicted yet hasn't been deemed guilty and so the question is should he be allowed to play and Look, from a tennis perspective, he was outstanding all week long. It's so windy on those courts in Doha, and he's got the sort of power from the baseline that transcends the uh, transcends the wind. And, you know, his wins over Federer, his win over Fritz in the semifinal, the win over Bautista Gut, he displayed such a high level of tennis. But I don't want to give him any credence because while he has not yet been convicted and deemed guilty, the charges against him are significant. They're serious enough that he was arrested. They're serious enough that as his employer, and I know each individual player is technically an individual contractor, not a direct ATP employer, but he represents the ATP game. And I think at a minimum, he should be suspended pending the conclusion of the case. Now, the counterpoint to that is, well, if he's deemed not guilty, he is going to sue the ATP for every penny because they uh, it's breach of contract. It's not allowing him to compete, whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, fine. Let him sue them if they're wrong. This is the sort of case you don't mess around. And if there were teeth and the ATP was, a, you know, a, a le- legitimate is the wrong word, were a toothful governing body, if they were a, I suppose, more powerful governing body, they would have some sort of mechanism in place to suspend him uh, pending the conclusion of the investigation because formal charges have been filed. And you may say, well, isn't that a double standard? Don't you think the same standard should be applied to Alex Zverev? 
I think yes. The the difference in this being formal charges were never filed. I have not yet been filed against Alex Virov, I should say. And so I just I, – I, I don't feel comfortable talking about Nicholas Bachelishvili's success on the court. I do want to talk about Roberto Bautista Goop because he was fantastic, baiting people into challenging his on-the-run forehand and just physically so locked in. And I feel like there's two ways to beat the wind, uh, to be the better player when it's a windy day. You either have the power to transcend that wind or you are just so physically fit, so able to track everything down that you make your opponent so uncomfortable. And that's what Roberto Bautista Agut did, whether it was just, again, the phenomenal absorbing and redirecting of tennis and the spin and the heaviness of the Dominic team ball in his three-set quarterfinal win, whether it was the uh, discipline he had attacking the Andre Rublev backhand and not being afraid of the Rublev forehand either in his 3-3 three and three semifinal win. And then, you know, again, the level, the fitness he displayed in that first set against Bass Roberto Bautista Agut was outstanding, and I mentioned all the stats for him, the career semifinals, where he was at relative to some of his peers. Uh, But, you know, you forget Roberto Bautista Agut. He's been a part of our lives for so long. Only 32 years old. Turns 33 pretty soon, but I think he's still got a couple of you know, he's younger than Novak Djokovic, and none of us expect Djokovic to slow down anytime soon. Now, Bautista Gut's game is very predicated on his physicality, so if there's an injury, it becomes a different story. But as long as he is healthy and able to keep this form, man, he looks good on an outdoor hard court. And it was, it was a great bounce back for him after a disappointing Australian Open. He was fantastic uh, in Doha all weekend long, uh, all week long. I thought it was a good week for Fritz as well. You look for him, wins over Sinego, Gofen, and Shapovalov. He did a really good job of being disciplined, attacking that Basilishvili forehand in the first set. But then, you know, just wasn't able to find breakpoint chances and went down an early break in the second set and was just kind of dejected from there. So that was disappointing, but still a good week for Taylor Fritz, who now you look in the live rankings, I believe Fritz circling that highest ranked American spot. He's at 30, Isner's at 27, with Miami coming up. Isner, I believe, was a finalist there in 2019. The reason I remember that, I think that was the weekend of Dalton Thieneman's bachelor party. Anyways, uh, Fritz, if a good run in Miami, Who knows what is possible, folks. Uh, But that was your action in Doha. Lastly, the ATP action in Santiago. Christian Guerin earns his fifth title of his ATP career that ties Stefano Tsitsipas, by the way, in that five-title count. Uh, He looked really good this week. Straight set wins over Tabilo, uh, Pablo Virias, and Daniel Galan before knocking off Fasundo Bagnus, 6-4, 6-7, 7-5. In a three-set final, you look for Christian Guerin since the start of the 2019 season, which was the year he made his breakthrough run by making that Sao Paulo final and then following up by beating Casper Ruud in in Houston, making the Munich, uh, winning the Munich title as well with wins over Schwartzman, Zirev, and Berrettini. Since the start of that 2019 season, Christian Guerin, 39 and 14 in ATP matches on clay courts. Now, I mentioned the titles uh, he won in Houston and in Munich. He's also since won titles in Rio de Janeiro last season. He won wins the title here in Santiago this season. I'm missing one as well, right? Because he's got five. Let's see. Houston, uh, Munich. Uh, Rio de Janeiro, Santiago. I'm missing something else. The point being, 
39 and 14 uh, since the start of the 2019 season on clay. That's elite, folks. And it's not like he's every time beating the Bagnuses and the Pablo Varias's and the Daniel Galans of the world, who are on their way to being top 100 players, certainly showed that sort of form on the clay courts. But, I mean, over the past few years, I mentioned the wins over Zverev and Schwartzman, Berrettini, wins over Chorich, a couple of wins over Schwartzman, and, you know, wins over a guy like Sasha Bublik, a win over a guy like Davidovich Fokina. He's just the real deal on clay, and I think why he's had so much more success on the clay than the hard court, other than the obvious factor being he grew up on the surface, is just that backhand wing. His ability to redirect that ball, keep it low and flat, is far more effective on a clay court than it is on a hard court because direction is the key on clay court. Keeping your momentum going, you know, one way and not getting misfooted or, you know, taking advantage of open space, open court when you see it. Uh, it's most successful for Garen on his backhand's far more successful for him on the clay court than it is on a hard court, where in my opinion, it just sort of sits up a little bit for opponents to attack. Now, his kick serve, his flat down the tees, his, you know, his forehand also all translate really well on clay courts, but I think they're all going to translate on hard courts too throughout his career. The key thing, his movement, and well, his movement's pretty good on hard courts, but his backhand, in my opinion, the biggest difference for him between the hard courts and the clays. But look, with this result, he maintains his ranking. He's number 20 in the world, and considering he really hasn't had that much success on the other surfaces yet, he continues to put up the elite results he needs on clay courts to maintain his ranking. It's testament to Christian Guerin, who, again, was clearly the best player this week in Santiago, ends up getting the job done. I will also say, the Daniel Galan forehand, very Kyle Edmundy. It's a little wristy, and he certainly turns into that ball, but man, does he, when he hits it, it's almost it's not always a winner, but it usually always means he's taking control of the point. He looks so comfortable moving on the clay. The backhand looks good as well, and it's a big backswing, so you can understand why most of Gallant's success in his career has come on clay, but you know, first semifinal, I believe, for him at the ATP level, well-deserved, and then Fasundo Bagnus just... Such a grind all week long was so fantastic. The Argentinian lefty uh, making, I believe, his maybe first ATP final. Let's see here. For Fasundo Bagnus, this past week was, I believe, his first ATP final, which for the 31-year-old, that's what you play the game for, folks. So shout out to him now up to number 105 in the live rankings. That's all the action we saw this weekend. And again, more challenger information to come on a great shot podcast this week with David Gertler. I will also be in Cleveland for this week's Cleveland Challenger, so be on the lookout for content from there on our various Cracked Rackets podcasts. We also will be previewing the rest of this week's action on a mini break podcast to be released either later tonight or tomorrow morning, so be on the lookout again. Just wanted to make those two separate episodes for all of you this week, but if you have missed anything from the past few week in the professional tennis world. You can catch up on all of it on our website, CrackRackets.com. You need the more immediate updates. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. We are at CrackRackets. You want to message me directly, I am at GreatShotPod. Shout out, as always, to our super producers, Max Ligner and Daniel Westoff, for the of an editing job they do day in, day out. Shout out, as well, to our friends at Midwest Sports. Go to MidwestSports.com. Use the promo code CR15 to get 15% off your order. But with that in mind, for our wonderful super producers, Fliegner and Westhoff, our friends at Midwest Sports, and all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. We'll see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. 